1 John chapter 1. We're going to be in this morning 1 John chapter 1 and 2. Now, I will warn you ahead of time that my first, first point is probably going to take up 90% of the message today. So, when it's like an hour later and we haven't made it through the first point yet, just be, just, you'll be okay. It won't be that long. But the first point will be the longest point this morning. So I just want you to be prepared for that, not to, not to revolt and freak out. But 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, let's read verses 1 through 5, and then we'll have a, have a word of prayer. The Bible says this, that which was, Steve, could you just take a little bit more off of me, please? That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life, which was with the Father, and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard, declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father, and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you in prayer this morning. We thank you so much for this opportunity we have to come together and to hear your word preached. Lord, I pray that you'd speak to us this morning. Lord, I pray that uh, as your word and your Holy Spirit speaks to us, that we would be receptive and obedient to what you'd have for us to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. I said we're going to read verse 5, so we'll read verse 5 now. This, then, is the message which we have heard of him, and declare unto you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. We're continuing the series on, on what it means to be a Christian, discovering the meaning of the true Christian life. And today, this morning, we're going to talk about joy and fellowship with God. Joy and fellowship with God. I love reading the writings of John. Uh, John is who we attribute the letter of 1 John to. You're like, well, yeah, it's called 1 John. But actually, he doesn't state himself as the author in 1 John. He doesn't state that. Um, but we see it by comparing the writings to other people, and the church has historically accepted John as the writer. John wrote, as we know, the Gospel of John. He wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He also wrote the book of Revelation. This is John the Apostle, John the disciple who Jesus loved. I, I enjoy reading his writings. Um, he's not as confusing as Paul. You know, if, if you read uh, letters that Paul wrote, sometimes you can get confused by them. Even Peter talks about that. Peter, in, in, in one of the letters he wrote, says, yeah, Paul wrote a lot of things, and they're hard to be understood. John, I don't think, is one of those writers who writes things that are difficult for us to understand. As the disciple who Jesus loved, and remember, that's how he refers to himself in the Gospel of John. By the time we get to 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, he's referring to himself no longer as the, the disciple who Jesus loved, but he refers to himself as John the Elder. You see that in 2 John. And likely at this time in his ministry and in his life, John is overseeing multiple churches, most likely throughout Ephesus. And the purpose of him writing the Gospel of John, you get to the end of the Gospel of John, and the purpose that we find with him writing the Gospel of John is that those who would read it would believe that Jesus is the Messiah and that he can change your life forever. And then we get to 1st, 2nd and 3rd John, these letters that he's writing to the churches in Ephesus. And 1st John reads more 
not so much as a letter, but more of a, of a sermon. First John reads, as you read through the, through the book of First John, it, it's a sermon that's very poetic in nature. He jumps around quite a bit. We'll find he chases some rabbit trails. So when Pastor Ethan or Pastor, uh, my dad, <laughs> what are we, the other pastor, when they chase rabbit trails, it's biblical. It's okay. When I chase rabbit, chase rabbit trails, it's biblical. Um, <laughs> pastor Ethan or Pastor my dad. That is officially his title from now on. Um, but as, as we read through the, the letter, First John, it reads more of a sermon that's poetic in nature. He jumps around a little bit. But you can see through his writings this deep love that he has for people. Second John is written as a, a warning because at the time there were many false teachers arising and they were teaching people that Jesus wasn't the Son of God, that Jesus was not God in the flesh. And the warning that John gives is, don't give them any time. They are antichrist, he says. And then in Third John, he's writing in support of a man in the church named Gaius. And it's in opposition to a man named Diotrephes. And this man didn't acknowledge John or the other apostles uh, their authority. So as we think about 1 John, we have to think about it in the broader context of these other, these other passages, these other books of the Bible that we have. But in 1 John, we see a deep care and a deep concern placed on the people that John is ministering to. No doubt the love that Jesus had shown John. Now, did, did John love Jesus more than any other disciple? No, he didn't. John didn't love Jesus more than any other disciple, but John felt the love differently than other, the other disciples did. And this love that John had experienced from Jesus just overflows in his life and in his writings. Truly, it's out of love that a pastor or a preacher will warn you of someone preaching a false gospel. Truly, it's out of love that someone will warn you of teaching falsely in the church, and truly it's out of love that someone would write so that you can know that Jesus is the Messiah and that you can change your life forever. We see this deep love when he addresses the members. Look with me at chapter 2, because just like John skipped around, we're going to skip around a little bit as well this morning. In chapter 2, verses 12 through 14, John is already deep into this sermon, and in chapter 2, verses 12 through 14, he addresses the people of the church. He says this, I write unto you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I write unto you fathers because you have known him that is from the beginning. I write unto you young men because you have overcome the wicked one. I have written unto you fathers because ye have known him that is from the beginning. I have written unto you young men because you are strong and the word of God abideth in you and ye have overcome the wicked one. He even, as he's addressing these new believers, he repeats himself again and repeats the same thing over. As he's addressing them, he's speaking to the little children or the new believer, the infant in Christ, the one who has just put their faith and trust in Jesus. He speaks to the young men, the ones who are strong in the faith because they've overcome the wicked one and have allowed their faith to grow. He speaks to the spiritual fathers who have a deep faith and have been an example to the little children and the young men. And now this audience that he's addressing isn't specific in gender, though he uses little children, young men, and fathers. 
It's more talking about spiritual maturity. And we'll see that as we go on. And before we really get into the meat of it, he says this in verse number five. He says, this then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. The message that I want to put forth is God is light. In verse number one, he even says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen, which we have looked upon with our eyes, or we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life. It reminds me of John chapter 1, verse 14. John chapter 1, verse 14, John says this, uh, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This word of life that John is referencing to isn't the, the word on paper, but it's the physical word, the word incarnate. It is Jesus Christ. And he says this, we have, just so you know that we know what we're talking about here, we didn't just hear about Jesus. We did something better. We saw him. But we didn't just see him. Because in Acts chapter 2, or in Acts, in Second Peter, the apostles talk about uh, being eyewitnesses of Jesus. They talk about the fact that, hey, we were there with him. We saw him. But even better than seeing him, John says this, we looked upon him. We looked upon him. Well, what's the difference between seeing him with our eyes and looking upon him? Well, it's more so of what John 1.14 says, we beheld his glory. We experienced it. We searched it out. We didn't just see him with our eyes, but we investigated. We looked upon him. They experienced him. And even better than that, even better than hearing and seeing and looking upon, he says we handled him with our hands. They were able to touch Jesus. In fact, in Luke chapter 24, verse 39, Jesus even tells the disciples after he rose from the dead to handle him, and they handle him. John, we see at the Last Supper, leaning on Jesus' breast. The word of life, Jesus, God's son, was tangible, is tangible. The first purpose he has in writing this letter, we find in verse 3, is to have fellowship with each other to have fellowship with God the Father and with God the Son. And then in verse number four, he says, these things write we unto you that your joy may be full. There is joy and fellowship with God, and we can see that this morning in our mission. We can see it in our struggle, and we'll see it in our advocate. So this morning, first of all, I'd like to talk about our mission. How do we see joy and fellowship with God in regards to our mission? Well, what is the mission of the Christian? What is the, miss, the mission of the Christian? Verse number five. This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The mission of the Christian, because God is light, we need to walk in light. Because God is light, we as believers need to walk in light. It's reminiscent of what John writes in John chapter 1. Go back with me to John chapter 1, and we'll read verses 1 through 9. John chapter 1, and we'll read verses 1 through 9. 
John says this, in the beginning was the word. That word is the reference to Jesus Christ. And we'll see that. And the word was with God. And the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And that life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light, that all men through him might believe. He, John, was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. We can go on in verse number 10. In verse number 10, he was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. When we walk in light, we can have fellowship with him. And John's ultimate mission was to proclaim that Jesus is the light, which in turn should cause the believer to walk as children of light. When we walk in light, we have fellowship. When we walk in light, we have fellowship. In verses 5 through 7, in verse number 5, he talks about the fact that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And sometimes I do this in the teen room with, it, with, the, with the teenagers because there's no windows in that room. Okay, um, We can shut the doors and we can turn off the lights. And it's, obviously it's not a perfect illustration because there's like a crack in the, in the door and you can see light coming through. But if there's darkness, if there's complete darkness, there's no what? There's no light. If there's light, there's no complete... You guys are you're smart. You guys are catching on. This room cannot be dark because the lights are on, right? There is no darkness in God at all because God is light. God is the source of light. And as we read through the Bible, darkness is typically a representation of sin. And we know that God cannot sin. There's no darkness in him at all. So if we say that we walk with him, if we say that we walk with him in fellowship, but we live characterized by a consistent life of sin, and we walk in darkness, then we're not of the light. That's what he's saying. In verse number six, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, what do we do? We lie and do not the truth. Believers are called to live a life of holiness. Believers are called to live a life that is set apart by the way that we act. Ephesians reminds us in chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, I believe it's on your handout. Let no man deceive you with vain words. For because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Be not therefore partakers with them. For ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the world. Walk as children of light. There's a transformation that takes place at salvation. 
where we read that if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. So this transformation produces a walk that walks in the light. Produces a walk that walks following the commandments of God. And because of our walk, we have fellowship with God. When we walk in the light, we have fellowship also with each other. The end of verse 7, look with me at verse 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us, cleanseth us from all sins. Now, the end of verse 7 is not saying that walking in light produces our salvation. It doesn't mean that living a life of obedience is what produces salvation. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying, um, it's the other way around. The blood of Jesus Christ cleansing us from our sin causes us to walk in light. It is the blood of Christ, again, cleansing us from all sin that causes us to walk in light. It causes a life of holiness, which leads us into the next thought. When we walk in light, we will have assurance of our faith. When we walk in light, we will have assurance of our faith. And we'll skip down it now, as John does, to chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. John says this in chapter 2, verses 3 through 6, And hereby, or by this, we do know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his, his, um, but whoso keepeth his word... In him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also to walk even as he walked. So again, we're jumping around just as, as John does for, cohesive, for cohesiveness here. But the way that we know that we're saved is by keeping his commandments. I'm not talking about a legalistic life where we have to, you know... Obviously, I'm not talking about a legalistic life. I'm preaching and I'm not wearing a tie. I was telling Kristen, this is the first time I've ever preached in big people church and not worn a tie. It feels weird. But we're obviously not talking about legalism. Do you understand what legalism is? Legalism means, legalism means that in order to be saved, you have to do this. You have to abide by these rules. I was talking about this yesterday with my dad. So we're sitting here. We have a meeting on Saturday mornings. This was like an informal meeting, but... We were talking about, um, I think you said you mentioned it on Wednesday night in your, in your Bible study, um, Romans chapter 14, and Paul is talking about people who say, well, I can only eat herbs or I can eat meat, and, and, and he's talking about the people who have to abide by this strict set of rules and guidelines are really the weaker Christian. They're really the weaker Christian. So we're not talking about, I'm not talking about, you know, if you're saved, you have to do this. You have to do this and you have to do this, whatever those rules could be. What I'm saying and what this verse is saying is, if you are a Christian, you will want to live your life a certain way that brings honor and glory to God because of the transformation where you have been translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. Do you understand what I'm saying? Our works don't produce faith. Our faith produces works. James talks about that. James says, you say, you say, that my works produce faith. Or, or, or you say, I'm sorry, James says, I can have faith without works, but really, James says, I'll show you my faith by my works. 
That's how we are uh, represented as children of God by our works. Even Jesus said, by their fruits, you shall know them. James, again, show me your faith without works and I'll show you my faith by my works. True faith produces a new life. True faith produces new desires, produces new actions. Think about it. Think about those of you, some of you, when I got saved, I was, I was a young boy when I put my faith in Jesus. I didn't live a wicked life in my past. I didn't have, but there still was a change that took place. But some of you evidently have that change by the way you lived before Jesus and the way you lived after Jesus. Some of you lived for, for, for partying and for, as, as Paul would say in his, uh, his epistles that he wrote, for riotous living. Some of you lived a life completely against God, wanting to tear him down and tear his followers down and disprove that he was even there. And when you put your faith and trust in Jesus, there was a change that took place in your life. And even those of us who get saved at a young age, there's a change that takes place in our life. And the difference is this, before we were a slave to sin, we were a slave to the kingdom of darkness, but now as children of God, we serve Jesus. We no longer have to sin. When we sin, it's because we choose to. Not because we have to, but because we choose to. If someone says they know him, verse number four, he that saith I know him and keepeth not his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. Those that say that they're a child of God, yet there's no change in their life. They're lying. They're faking it. They're an imposter according to the word of God because true conversion produces change. And it's not you changing. It's the Holy Spirit changing you. It's not that you have to try harder. It's you need to rely on the Holy Spirit more. He says in, in, in verse number um, number five, and and I'm, I am no Greek scholar. In fact, I took second, year of Greek, uh, second semester of Greek twice. Uh, not because I did so well the first time, I needed to teach it the second. Um, I am no Greek scholar. However, I'm thankful for the Greek class I took because our project, and I completely forgot about this until I was preparing for this, this message, our project was to translate the book of 1 John. Uh, from the Greek to English. So there's a lot of insights as I was looking through my college notes that I found in my translations that I was working on. Again, we were supposed to do the whole book and I got through chapter two. So I am no <laughs> Greek scholar. But in verse number five, but whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know that we are, we are in him. This is a condition, uh, it's a conditional relative clause, okay? So it's a relative clause with a condition. It's an indefinite relative, meaning that there's a potential here for any, anybody, any person. What it means is, what Greek is, is an interesting language. And a lot of times there are, you know, there are, there's one word in the Greek and there's no good word in the English for it. And so entire phrases are, are, have to be translated to make a cohesive thought. But 
this is talking about a consistent keeping of God's law. It doesn't mean that you're going to be perfect. It doesn't mean that you're never going to sin. You're never going to fall short. It's a consistent keeping of God's law. Our salvation doesn't count on our deeds, right? But there should be consistency in obedience for the child of God. It doesn't mean we're never going to fall or stumble. Most We talk about in churches besetting sins. And most Christians have a sin that they struggle with. And they just struggle with, with that sin, whether it's you know, greed, or it could be anger, uh, it could be lust, it could be, I mean, there's so many different things it could be, and each person has their own that they struggle with on a daily basis. Doesn't mean we never fall. But it means that that sin does not control our life. Because there has to be evidence of a changed life. Because when we walk in light, we show our faith. When we walk in light, we show our faith. Chapter 2, verses 7 through 11. John says, Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment, which, you have, which ye have heard from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which ye have heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past and the true light now shineth. What does he say? I'm not writing you a new commandment. I'm writing an old commandment, but this is a new commandment. What is he saying? I, I thought you said John wasn't confusing. Well, it's not. It's not confusing. John is saying, I'm writing you, not, I'm not writing anything new to you. I'm writing an old commandment, which has always been there. And then he says, but again, it's a new commandment. And it means this. The commandment is not new in time, but it's new to this church in practice. They haven't been following this commandment. So he's saying, listen, this commandment's been in place. It's time for you to follow it like it's the first time that you've heard it. He that says that saith he is in the light and hateth his brother is in darkness even until now. The commandment to walk in light shows our faith to others. And the new commandment that John is discussing is the commandment of love. When we walk in light, we can't harbor hatred in our hearts towards others. We can't harbor bitterness. We can't live a life trying to get even or get revenge. Or, again, he, said, he says, he that hateth his brothers in darkness, even until now. When we walk in light, we live as Christ taught us, and that is to love. Christ taught us a new way. Love your enemy, he said. Do good to them that hurt you and pray for them which despitefully use you. That's not natural. That's not natural to love someone who is your enemy. To pray for those who want to seek harm against you, that is not natural, but that's the commandment that Jesus taught. He even goes on, he says, he's asked at one point, Jesus says, this man comes up to him and asks him, Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, well, the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And he doesn't stop there because he says, the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And then even goes on 
to explain who your neighbor is. Because the man says, okay, and who is my neighbor? He's not talking about the person who lives immediately next door to you only. Who is my neighbor? Jesus then goes on to explain the story of the Good Samaritan. And, and I'm not, for sake of time, going to repeat the story over, but who was the neighbor in the story? It's called the Good Samaritan, so the Samaritan is the neighbor in the story. He showed love to the Jewish man when the priest and the Levite, who were of the same nationality, because back then, that was Samaritans and Jews, they hated each other. The priest and the Levite, they saw the Jew, the, the, the Jew abused lying on the ground and just walked the other way. One of them even crossed over to walk on the other side. Yet the Samaritan, who was hated by the Jews, stopped and helped this man. And goes even further, brings him to the inn and says, I'm going to leave him here with you, and whatever he owes you, put it on my account. Which was the neighbor? Well, it was the Samaritan. The one who should be the enemy is the neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. So even in, as we look at the world, as we look at the worldview that Jesus gives us, do we even have enemies? They are our neighbor. When you consistently love, that's what. Loving your brother, it speaks of, it's talking about a consistent love. Verse number, um, verse number 11. No, I'm sorry, verse number 10. He that loveth his brother, again, that's a consistent loving, abideth in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. Here's another interesting one. Again, my non-scholarly Greek study. The, that phrase, occasion of stumbling, is one word in the Greek, and it's scandalon. And word, what word do you think we get from that? Scandal. If you consistently love, then you live a life without scandal. Because you treat others as you want to be treated. We live in a, in a world that's full of scandal, don't we? We live in a, in a world that is full of scandal. And think about, if a righteous man does a wicked thing, that is scandalous. And who is righteous? If we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are all righteous. We stand in his righteousness. And so if we do a wicked thing, if we sin, if we don't have love towards a brother or a sister in Christ, that is scandalous. When a righteous person does a wicked thing, it's scandalous. Think of, think of Lot in the Old Testament. The Bible tells us that Lot was a righteous man. Now, there was a time in his life where he did not live consistently following the commandments of God. Correct? Correct. So again, works don't produce faith. Faith produce, produces works. And there is the ability for a believer to be backslidden. We, we find Lot severely backslid, uh, backslidden. Lot is living in Sodom. When he's warned by the angels, his children don't believe him. His wife is killed on the way out of the city because she looked back, remember, she turns into a pillar of salt. His daughters end up thinking that the entire world is destroyed, so they get pregnant by their father. Lot was a righteous man who did some wicked things, and his life was characterized by scandal. 
When we think of Lot now, we don't think of a righteous man, do we? We don't talk about the time that he lived with Abraham, following God's laws, working with his uncle. We don't talk about that. We talk about the sin that Lot committed because there was scandal. Okay, but when God talks about Lot, what does God say? That righteous man's soul was vexed every day. God sees him as righteous not because of his works, but because of his faith. There's a scandal when a righteous person does a wicked thing. There should be no occasion of stumbling. He says in verse number 15, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Don't love the world. Don't love the things that the world has to offer. Because everything that the world has to offer, its cravings and its desires are going to pass away. When, when it says, if any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. It's not saying that God doesn't love us anymore. It, what it's saying is this, the Father still loves us, but we're only able in that time to love the Father as much as we don't love the world. You can't love two things the same amount. It's impossible. And as much as you love the world, that's as much as you can't love the Father. That's the meaning behind this phrase. And what the world has to offer in its cravings and its desires and its lusts, it's temporary and it's passing away. In other words, the person who is nourished on the world is going to pass away with it. But the one who does God's will will remain forever. When we walk in the light, when we walk in the light, we show our faith. In verse number five, remember, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. The mission of the Christian is to walk in light. Secondly, again, these next two are, are not going to take as long as the first one, I hope. Secondly, not only can we have joy in fellowship because of the mission that we have, because walking in light produces joy, but there's a struggle that we face. Well, how, how in the world can struggle produce joy. I'm glad you asked. Let's talk about it. And we're not, again, we're not going to take too much time here because we talked about it a lot under the first point. But in verses 8 and 10 of chapter 1, John reminds us that we can't deny that we sin. First John chapter 1 verses 8 and 10. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 10 if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Every single believer faces a struggle with sin. We've talked about it quite a bit already, but in Romans, Paul says this, where sin abounded, grace abounded even more. But And this is a paraphrase, but should we continue in sin in order that grace may abound? And Paul's response is, God forbid. Paul talks often about bringing his body under subjection. He says this, 
and again, it's a paraphrase, the things that I know I should do, I don't do. And the things, um, the things I know I shouldn't do, I do. Anybody else ever been there before? Like, you know what you're supposed to do, but you don't do it. And you know what you're not supposed to do, but you do it. Well, yeah, that is the struggle of every single believer. That is the struggle. So how can we have joy in this struggle? How can there be joy in fellowship when we have this struggle? I'm glad that you ask. But before we get there, because I skipped ahead and missed something important. In verse number 10, if someone says that they haven't sinned or that they don't sin anymore, they're not just a liar themselves, but they're calling God a liar. It's one thing for you to lie. Still a bad thing, kids. Don't lie. It's one thing for you to lie, to make yourself a liar. But it's a completely other thing for you to call God a liar. We can't deny the fact that we sin. We have to admit when we sin. There's verse number nine. Verse number nine tells us this in chapter one. If we confess, if we confess, if we admit, if we come to terms, if we agree with God, if we confess our sins, he is faithful. We sing, great is thy faithfulness. God is faithful. He's steady. He's sure. He's steadfast. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. We'll talk about just in a few minutes to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As a believer, we've been forgiven of all the sin, of all of our sins when we put our faith in the atoning work of Jesus Christ, when we put our, our faith in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. So when we sin as a believer, we act as if we are still unrighteous. We act as if we are not saved. This verse when he says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's not, um, it's not positional, it's relational. Do you know what I mean when I say that? When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are declared righteous. The moment that we say, that we admit that we're a sinner, that we believe that Jesus died and paid the penalty for our sin and that he's the only way to heaven and that he rose again and we call on his name to save us, we are declared righteous. We are justified. Our position is set in Christ. There's nothing that can change that. But relationally, we can damage that. We can damage our relationship. It's similar to like a spouse. Oh, that's me. I hear myself speaking over there. It's, it's similarly to like a spouse. Okay, I, I have never done this, so I'm speaking from what I've heard. But if a spouse does something to sin against another spouse, to, to sin against their spouse, again, I'm never, I've never been guilty of this, um, it doesn't change the position of them being married. We understand the picture of marriage given to us is a perfect picture of one man and one woman forever. And we understand in the world that we live in that there is divorce uh, and there's heartbreak and there are there are real difficulties that people face. I completely understand that. This is not to minimize that. But in the picture given to us in Scripture, one man and one woman forever. If I sin against my spouse and do something that upsets her. Okay, I lied earlier. I do that quite a bit. Um, 
It doesn't change the fact that I'm still married to her. But it does affect our relationship. Right? Like, um, I know when it affects my relationship because of the faces I get and the different phrases that are told to me. Um, and that relationship is not restored until there is admittance of a wrong and forgiveness. Now, because we don't live in a perfect world, it takes a long time for the admitting and it takes a long time for the forgiving sometimes, sometimes. Um, yeah, it, not just me, right? Like everybody, okay, no one's raising their hands. Um, It damages our relationship until there's admit, uh, until someone admits and, and it's forgiven. Typically, because we live in a fallen world, typically both people are at fault. Not all the time. But typically there is some level of fault in both people. Um, and we're able to, most of the time, get through that. Now, when we sin against God, one person's at fault. That's us. God is never at fault. We have to come to terms, come to agreement with the sin, even as a believer that we've sinned against God and how it's damaged our relationship. You notice that maybe there's been a time in your life when you've been backslidden. And what's, what starts to fall away? Well, your personal devotion time. And then your, typically your prayer life is first, and then your devotion time. And you're no longer communicating with God. And you're wondering, how come God isn't speaking to me? And how come I'm not hearing from God? And I come, and we can still even come to church when we're not having personal devotion and personal prayer time. And God isn't speaking to us like he used to because there's damage to our relationship. But if we confess, he's faithful. And he's just to forgive us. God is faithful. And his faithfulness is great. And he's always ready to forgive. He's always ready for us to come to him to restore the relationship. And he's also just, which leads us to the third and last observation this morning. The advocate of the Christian. We can have joy and fellowship because of our mission. We can have joy and fellowship even though there's a struggle because of our advocate. Because of our advocate. Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children, those who are young in the faith, he says, I'm writing, these things I write unto you, that ye sin not. He's talking about, you know, living a life characterized by following God, walking in light, not walking in darkness, and he reminds them, I know that you're saved. He says, I'm writing to believers, my little children. Again, he takes that break in chapter, uh, chapter 2, verses 12 to 14 to remind them, listen, I may be coming off hard on you, but I know that you're in God. I know that you're a believer. My little children, these things I write unto you, that ye sin not. The admonition, avoid sin. Avoid sin. How, how, how do you avoid sin? Well, don't sin. Don't go to places that cause you to sin. Don't do things that cause you to sin. It, 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 you're like, well, that sounds really simple. It is really simple. I realize there are addictions that people struggle with. And that's a completely different thing. But 
you first have to have the desire to stop sinning. You first have to have a desire to stop sinning. And I know that as you have, once you have that desire to stop sinning, it does not come easily. My dad talked, talks often about his struggle but when he accepted Jesus as a young man about his struggle with alcohol addiction and how some people, they get saved and they never touch a drop again, yet he struggled for six months asking God, begging God to take the desire away from him. For some people, it takes longer. I understand that. But first, there has to be a desire to stop sinning. And the sin that you may struggle with could be completely different than it is for somebody else. And it often is. Think about the fact that you don't have to sin. It's freeing. Tell my wife about an experience that happened this week. Um, I was driving in my car, and there was a, a temptation that came on me. It wasn't speeding, because that was a temptation I gave into. Um, and I literally had a conversation with myself, and it was, you don't have to do, you don't have to sin. You don't have to do this. And it was, we had literally just talked about it, I think the Wednesday night before with the teens, or recently, these days, you know, as, as you get older, some of you may not realize this, as you get older, days and weeks, they just all merge together. <laughs> but I, it was freeing. I don't have to do that. And guess what? I didn't do that. I did something else. You don't have to sin. So there, there has to be a desire to not sin. Avoid sin. Now, that may mean for some people, don't have a, and we'll talk about specifics just for a second. That may mean for some people, don't go shopping past where there's alcohol. Don't walk past the, the alcohol aisle. That may mean for some people, you may need to put your computer in an area that has open view. You may need to have uh, security measures on your phone. It could mean something different for every person. However, you first have to have the desire to not sin. My little children, I write these things unto you that ye sin not. Some of you have, some of you are that little child that he's talking about. You've just gotten saved. Your life has just been changed because you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Some of you are the young men that he talks about. Those who have been saved for a period of time and are in the prime of your life and you're able to do mighty things for God, you've overcome the wicked one. And some of you are the spiritual fathers and the spiritual mothers who have been saved for a very long time and have seen some of the young men and young women grow in their faith and have seen some of these little children who just put their faith, again, I'm not talking about little children as we think of it physically, but little children spiritually. You've seen people come to Christ and it's exciting. But you still have to avoid sin. Well, how can we have joy if there's a struggle with sin because of our advocate. In the second part of verse number one, John says this, if any, man, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. 
This word advocate could also be translated intercessor. We have somebody standing in front of God on our behalf. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, I'll read it for sake of time. If you want to turn there, go ahead. Revelation 12, verse number 10. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now has come salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. Satan stands before God accusing the believer day and night of their sin. Yet Jesus stands ready to intercede on our behalf. And he doesn't just stand in between us and God, but he stands in our place. Verse number two says, he is the propitiation. That word means he is the offering that was given to be to satisfy the wrath of God. He is the substitute that we needed. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he hath made him, that's Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. God is just. Remember, he's faithful and just. So all of his wrath had to be placed on something or somebody, and it was placed on Jesus Christ when he bore our sins. God's wrath is about his righteousness. It's about his holiness. It's about his justice, but it's also about his love. It's also about his love. God placed all of his wrath on Jesus when he died on the cross for our sins. And his wrath is a righteous response to human sin. But God just didn't provide the wrath for the offering. He provided the offering. Remember back in in the book of Genesis, we see this great foreshadowing and this great image. and, And Abraham and Isaac are walking up the mountain for a sacrifice. And Isaac, probably a young boy at the time, says, Father, I see... I, 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 I'm carrying the wood for the offering. And I know we're going to build an altar, but where's the offering? Where's the sacrifice? And what was, what was Abraham's response? God will provide himself a lamb. God will provide himself a lamb. And when they, when they get up there, they see a ram caught in the thicket. But it's not just God providing the ram for Abraham. It is God providing the sacrifice for us because we couldn't do it. In order to satisfy the wrath of God, something perfect and righteous had to be sacrificed, and that could never be us. All of our righteousnesses by ourselves are as filthy rags. We had nothing to offer him, yet he stood in our place. And he continues to stand in our place. He provided the sacrifice necessary for atonement in his son, Jesus Christ. We couldn't provide it, and God didn't ask us to. We're already forgiven because of what Jesus did. Jesus doesn't stand in our place in hopes to get God to love us. Jesus stands in our place in order that God could love us. We're able to overcome sin because of who Jesus is and what he does. And that's how we can have joy and fellowship. We can have joy and fellowship because of the mission that he gives us, even amidst the struggle that we face as a Christian, because we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's not just an advocate, but he's our propitiation. So in closing, I have two questions. First, have you personally put your faith in Jesus Christ? Have you put your faith in the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross? There's nothing that you can do of yourself 
to save you. There's no works that you can add to his work. It is simply admitting that you're a sinner, believing that your sin is what is going to sentence you to eternity in the lake of fire, believing that Jesus died paying the penalty for your sin and that he rose again, proving he was victorious over sin and death and calling on the name of the Lord to be saved, saying, yes, God, I believe. If you've never done that, you can do that right now in the quietness in the next few minutes. The next question is for the believer. John wrote this so that we could have fullness of joy and fellowship with each other, with the Father, and with the Son. Do you have fullness of joy? Is your life characterized by the joy that God wants to give you? By walking in the light? Are you walking in the light? Maybe you're thick in the struggle to overcome sin. Look to your advocate, Jesus Christ, and he will give you victory. It's because of what he's done that we can overcome. I'll have heads bowed and eyes closed, and the instruments um, will start to play in a few minutes. And we'll sing uh, for the invitation, His mercy is more. But as our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, just I want, if you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, now today is the day, now is the time. And if you do that today, afterwards come and find somebody, tell somebody that today I put my faith in Jesus. Maybe you have more questions. Well, you can come forward during the song and someone will be able to, my dad will be able to talk with you. Somebody else will be able to answer any questions that you could have. And then as the instruments start to play, now, Christians, are you living a life walking in the light? Lord, we thank you so much that you are atonement for our sin, Lord. We thank you that you paid the price for us and that we can cherish you and be with you forever, Lord, in eternity. I pray that you'll help us remember this. We ask this in your name.